0: If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age: Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold.
1: This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Paul Doherty. He is the Chief Technical Officer and Chief Information Officer at Accenture. He holds a computer engineering degree from the University of Michigan. Welcome to the show, Paul. It's great to be here, Byron. Boy, looking at your dates on uh, LinkedIn, it looks like you went to work for Accenture right out of college, and, and that was a quarter of a century or more ago. That must be quite, quite to having having seen the company grow, like what has that journey been like?
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for dating me. Yeah. The uh, It's actually been 32 years, so I guess I'm going on a third of a century uh, that joined Accenture back in uh, 1986 and uh, as the company's uh, evolved uh, in many ways since then. And uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey because the the world has changed so much since then. And a lot of the, the what's fueled the change you know, in the world around us has been what's happened with technology. I think, you know, 1986, the PC was was brand new. And uh, we went from that to networking and client server and uh, the internet, uh, cloud computing, mobility, internet of things, uh, you know, artificial intelligence are the things we're working on today. So it's been a, a really amazing journey fueled by the, the way the world's changed, enabled by all this uh, amazing technology.
1: So let's talk about that, specifically artificial intelligence. I always like to get our bearings by asking you to define either artificial intelligence, or if you're really feeling uh, bold, define intelligence.
0: <laughs> I'll start with artificial intelligence, uh, which we, we define as, yeah, um, uh, you know, as uh, as technology that can sense, think, act, and learn is is the way we we describe it. You know, in systems that can then do that. So sense, like you know, uh, vision in a self-driving car. Uh, think, you know, making decisions on what the car does next, uh, act in terms of actually you know, steer the car, and then learn to continuously improve behavior. So that's the the, the working definition that we use for for art, artificial intelligence. And I describe it more simply to people sometimes as it's fundamentally technology that has more human-like capability to approximate the things that we're used to. You know, assuming and thinking that only humans can do speech, vision, uh, you know, predictive capability and some things like that. So that's the way I define uh, artificial intelligence. Intelligence, I define. I would define differently. Intelligence is, I would define more broadly, and I'm not an expert in you know, neuroscience or cognitive sciences or anything, but I've defined intelligence generally as the ability to both reason and comprehend and then extrapolate and generalize across many different domains of knowledge. And that's what differentiates human intelligence from artificial intelligence, uh, which is something we can get a lot more into. So I think the fact that we call this body of work that we're doing artificial intelligence, both the word artificial and the word intelligence, I think lead to misleading perceptions on what we're really doing.
1: So expand that a little bit. you said, and that's the way you think human intelligence is different than artificial. Put, put a little flesh on those bones. In exactly what way do you think it is? Well, you know, that the, the te- techniques we're really using today for artificial intelligence,
0: they're generally from the you know, branch of AI around machine learning. So machine learning, deep learning, neural nets, etc. cetera. And uh, it's technology that's very good at recon- you know, using patterns and recognizing patterns in data to you know, kind of learn from observed behavior, so to speak. Um, not necessarily intelligence in a broad sense; its ability to learn from specific inputs. And you can think about that almost as idiot savant-like capabilities. So yes, I can use that to beat uh, to to, pro, to develop AlphaGo to beat the world's Go master. But then that same program wouldn't know how to generalize and play play me in tic-tac-toe. And that ability, you know, the intelligence ability to generalize, extrapolate rather than interpolate, is is what human intelligence is is differentiated by and the thing that would bridge that would be artificial general intelligence uh, which we again can get into a little bit but we're you know we're not at that point of having artificial general intelligence we're at a point of artificial intelligence where it, it can mimic very specific very specialized very narrow human capabilities but it can it's, it's not yet you know anywhere close to human human level intelligence
1: do you think it's do you think that the narrow ai we have is on a pathway on an evolutionary pathway to an agi or is an agi like oh no no we have not started building that that's going to be something different you can't just you can't just study a, a bunch of data about the past and make predictions about the future and have that somehow have an emergent general intelligence come out of that so do you think we're 1% the way on a path or do you think that's a different path to get to agi
0: it's a non-linear and i think a very different path that that uh, to get to artificial general intelligence and one of the one of the things you have to deal with here is that there is no real generally accepted definition even of artificial general intelligence. So so, so some would say it's just the ability to do some simple cross domain, uh, knowledge understanding or its ability to do more generalized, uh, uh, broad domain search, and they'd say that's artificial general intelligence. I would say that's, that's not. That's just you know, better search technology or you know, kind of narrow, still narrow forms of AI. And the techniques we have today aren't the ones that are going to evolve and give us true, you know, A- it, what I would define as AGI, which is real cross-domain human-like ability to contextualize, generalize, you know, extrapolate, et cetera. So uh, I, we need breakthroughs in, in a lot of new and different domains and technologies to get us to, to AGI uh, breakthroughs. It's not going to be all learning-based, machine learning-based technology, we need uh, we need contextual reasoning, symbolic reasoning, other types of uh, knowledge representation technologies beyond the, the, the learning-based technologies we have today to truly get us to that AGI, which are other breakthroughs that are still ahead of us, and why I believe we're, we're, we're quite a distance away from true um, AGI capability if, if defined in that way.
1: So when you talk about extrapolate and generalize and all of that, I mean, you're talking uh, about, broadly speaking, you're talking about transfer learning, correct? Uh,
0: tr- yeah, transfer learning, but in a in a broad uh, in a in a broad and expansive sense, sense so, rather than transfer learning as a technique in machine learning to to, to map up. narrowly from domain to domain.
1: Yeah, right. So I guess you know if you can train a child, like show them five drawings of a cat, and then they'll uh, they'll, they'll they'll recognize cats, and then they'll even say, oh, that's what they see a manx, they'll say, oh, that's a cat without a tail, even though they hadn't ever been taught that there was a cat without a tail. I mean. How do you think it is that we're so good at that and machines are so bad at that? Like, what do you think we're doing that, that it all comes kind of effortlessly to us? It's just how we're wired, but we can't seem to replicate that in a machine. Like you said, it's, everything we do is incredibly narrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great question, I'm, and it's an area that's of great interest to me. But <laughs> I would
0: say I don't have the answer to that question uh, in, in general terms. I, you know, cognitive uh, you know, cognitive um, science and um, neuroscience have always been interest areas of mine. But I'm not, uh, I'm not the, the deepest expert in those areas. The thing that got that did get me hooked on AI though many years ago, back in uh, in college. Uh, you know, I think the year was 1984. I was in college at the University of Michigan. I took a course with Douglas Hofstadter, who you may know or know of, who wrote the book uh, *Go to Lesher Bach, The Eternal Golden Braid*, and he was a, a, a early pioneer of one of the pioneers in, in uh, cognitive science. And that got me hooked on this whole idea of how the brain works and how you can start to do some things, you know, leveraging the way the brain works in software. But um, I, you know, there's there's fundamentally we we di- you know we don't know enough about how some of these things work, and we certainly are are far from being able to embody that. In uh, in software, you know that uh, that we can then that we can gen- then generalize. So, so I think you know, we're still a ways off from that. I think the interesting development going forward is going to be the how advances in neuroscience in areas like you know let's let's take an area like uh, cognitive neuroprosthetics, so enhancing the brain's capability. How does that whole branch you know compare and maybe compete with? Artif- you know, artificial intelligence in the form of silicon-based techniques. So, as we improve the capability of our biological capability with our brain, you know what, what's also happening with artificial intelligence and our, our techniques that lead us to AGI. It's going to be interesting to see both continue to evolve because we're going to continue to advance our own human capability very, very rapidly in addition to what we're doing in, in silicon and you know in computing with artificial intelligence.
1: And do you, you know, the other th- the other thing we seem to do are really good job at is pattern matching like you can lay on a hillside with somebody and look up at a cloud and say oh look you know there's a horsey and they say oh yeah i see that uh even though it's the vaguest of horses right so we seem to be have very fluid pattern matching and and yet it seems that our machine instantiations of that are very rigid do you think we're on an evolutionary path to get past that or do we need a a fundamental breakthrough there
0: you know, I, but from what I see, I think the the pattern matching I think will continue to evolve very very rapidly. And and uh, already, um, in machine learning, deep learning techniques are better at many many types of pattern matching than than people are. Uh, they can they can go out across a broader ex- a data expanse that's incomprehensible and hard for us to interpret as as humans and develop the patterns in that. For example, work we're doing in anti money laundering in banks, where you can take you know petabytes of information and in transactions and you run algorithms and quickly understand some correlations and patterns that may represent uh, you know bad behavior criminal behavior in in, uh, in transactions be really really difficult for a human to comprehend and, and understand those patterns very easy uh, or not easy but very possible for machines to you know, to be used to to do that and algorithms to be used to do that so um, so I think we're already at a point where in many ways the pattern matching of, of machines is is superior to to what we can do as humans
1: so one one last kind of philosophical level question do you think that human consciousness so our ability that we actually experience the world we feel warmth we don't measure temperature, we have a first person experience of the world do you think that is a key element of our generalized intelligence, or do you think that we'll be able to maybe in a hundred years build an AGI, but it won't necessarily need consciousness to be as smart or smart and versatile as we are?
0: Yeah, it's so it's a fascinating question. Something I'm myself doing a lot, you know, some uh, work on, and we're doing some work in our in our uh, research labs around this too, to, to just understand the d- dimensions of that, even what that question is. But I, I think um, my uh, I think in the short term, in the foreseeable future looking out you know 10 10 20 years and and beyond it's hard it's it's I, I don't see um a vein of research that's leading us to an understanding of consciousness and an ability to understand you know the basic elements of consciousness i think that is that that is something that we're, we're still you know trying to understand from a neuroscience perspective much less model precisely from a from a software perspective so i think we're quite a ways off from having anything that that approximates any form of consciousness in a in a in in, in a you kind of a silicon-based
1: algorithmic form. Well, you know, it, it it has been called the last great scientific question that we don't we know neither how to ask it scientifically or yeah. nor what the answer uh, will look like. I mean, I yeah. just I just had yeah. a book come out on the topic last month uh, about whether machines can become conscious, and I could kind of distill down eight different kind of schools of thought about the origins of consciousness, and and try to speculate whether uh, a machine could. Whether that could, you know, be be represented in a in a machine, but it, it it's just I don't want to say it's either humbling or embarrassing. I don't know which that we understand our most basic experience of the world so poorly.
0: And I think it's actually exciting that we don't understand it. So maybe just flipping the lens a little bit so if it, that is what uh, makes life, you know, dynamic dynamic and interesting and uh and, and very experiential is the is uh it's it's the way we understand and interact and interpret the world so i think consciousness is kind of at the heart of what makes us human and the fact it's a bit of a mystery i think is, is it okay and not a, really a surprise and but it's, it's gonna be interesting to watch the science of this move rapidly and see if we can distill some of the components of what what makes up consciousness down to something we can do more algorithmically but again i i think we're uh, we're a ways away from that that's uh, truly happening
1: you had a book come out, which I am holding here in my hand, recently called "Human Plus Machine: Reimagining Work in the Age of AI." Can you talk about why? Uh, what? What question were you trying to answer with this book, and why did you write it?
0: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good companion piece to your book, perhaps, because we're well, the, the reason we wrote the book is we thought that the uh, when we stepped back two years ago, we were doing a lot of work at that point with, with artificial intelligence already and had a lot of uh, research and, and real, you know, real activity going on with it. But we didn't think there was a good book out there that, that gave guidance to business executives, business managers, people in business, and IT technology types of professions in terms of what to do with AI. How do you apply it to your business? What's the roadmap to getting business value out of it? What's the way to do it? right you know to build the foundation to really you know improve your business create growth and profitability competitiveness whatever your business wants but do it in a way that avoids what could be some of the unique downsides or uh, uh, risks that can come about with artificial intelligence so that's why we uh why we, why we wrote human plus machine and the um uh and the other you know key part of human plus machine that we quickly identified through the research and activity that we did is is the plus sign in it. We quickly concluded that the it's really about the human plus the machine and how we bring individual capability together with uh, AI software, your know, technology to create new ways of working. And that human plus machine is really the central idea that, that carries through the book.
1: Isn't that what Kasparov concluded about chess, that in the end it was going to be uh, a ch- a, 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 an awesome chess program Paired with an awesome player or players that would that would in the end be the very best. Yeah, we see that in profession after
0: profession that that that's the case. We, as part of the process of writing the book, we researched over fifteen hundred organizations. We talked to thousands of executives as well as, well as workers, you know, at all different levels, uh, low skilled professions to more highly skilled professions, looking at the way work was being done and what organizations were doing. And the conclusion, time and again, is that the real Interesting applications that were driving different, you know, differentiated business results were those that were pairing the two in the way you just described, you know, that, that uh, Kasparov concluded with chess. An example from Harvard is the, the medical research they did on uh, breast, uh, uh, breast cancer tumor detection, where they concluded an, an algorithm, the algorithms were about 92% accurate. A human uh, diagnosis, human doctor at this point is about 96% accurate, but you compare the two together and it's about 99.5% accurate. So the best results are the human plus the machine, you know, working together, making the decision. Again, we see that replicated in in many, many examples, and that's the heart of this human plus machine perspective and a lot of the central ideas of the book.
1: So walk me through some of your findings. If I'm an enterprise today, and I've, you know, heard uh, about this AI thing, and I want to know how can I apply that technology to my business, what's the first question I ask, or what's the first thing I assess? I think the first thing you assess
0: is, um, we start with, is uh, is where you apply it in the business, and that's an important decision that you make. What What problem, you know, can it solve, or what part of the business have you not been able to improve in the way you wanted to or what's really critical to your differentiation. And then you know, look at how you can you know, how you can take on that problem and come up with a, a different way of, of, of approaching it. We call that reimagination. And that's another word that's in the title of the book, reimagining work. We believe this is fundamentally different than the prior generations of technology. We've been automating and we've been re-engineering uh, business for a while, but that's about like flowcharts and static sequential processes and and uh, you know incremental improvements, the way we work. But reimagining it's about how do you fundamentally create, you know, breakthrough new approaches you couldn't have created before. So an example is uh, like a uh, with the uh, in the life sciences industry of pharmaceutical companies, we're looking at and um, working with deep learning models that are a different way of doing the science of identifying. Uh, New, new therapeutic treatments. So, you can use deep learning to identify disease characteristics, match them to molecular compound characteristics, and, and uh, better detect the patterns, as we were talking about earlier, that lead to new treatments to disease. So, it's fi- that the results are that's finding drugs faster, using a very different approach, injecting AI into what was previously more of a science, pure science-based approach, and fusing that together. And that's you know changing the R&D process in the way that's done in that industry. And those are the kind of results that we see yeah you know, making real difference. That's the first step that we talk about.
1: And you know I kind of think that there's three completely different stratospheres of of applying this technology. So you have you have a very few very large companies that have an enormous amount of technical talent that are able to do primary kinds of things in the field. And then you have a different size enterprise, a smaller one, which is able to use the platforms that are out there you know, the half dozen or dozen platforms to, to create their own projects. And, um, and again, they've got coding horsepower and all of that. And then you have a smaller enterprise, which needs to wait until that technology is instantiated in some tool that they use, some piece of software or hardware that has it kind of, if I'm a hundred person company or a 500 person company, wh- where in that should I be thinking? Yeah, I think you have to think
0: about. Um, you really have to think about two things, which is the the algorithms and the data, and that's. Uh, and I think what's what we already see happening is that for the you know for the algorithms, the tools you use, a lot of that's being um, democratized, and we think that'll continue to happen more and more. As AI evolves, so for example, you can go to a platform. You know, take Google as an g- example. Look at Google's Vision API. Uh, very powerful capability that's available to anybody who knows a little bit of Python to use powerful, you know, pattern recognition, image recognition, you know, through a simple API and develop powerful new capabilities for their business. That's an example of what we call the democratization of AI. We see that happening across many, many different platforms and in categories of uh, application software, what that means to, your, to answer your question is this isn't going to be just a tool for the big companies. Uh, small companies and even entrepreneurs starting starting companies are going to have, uh, already have and will increasingly have, very powerful tools available to solve, uh, to solve their problems. And we see that type of innovation already. A lot of really interesting companies being formed, new startups that are using AI to disrupt individual industry segments or... Bring new products to market, leveraging the capability they can get from the, from the more powerful platforms. The the second thing, though, is the data, and that's the, that's what's going to become a real competitive differentiator for a lot of companies. But given that, with the current learning based techniques data is really the fuel you know data is the fuel for the ai engines we're developing so access to the right amounts of data is going to be a real competitive differentiator for companies and as we start i think large companies many in many cases have an advantage because they have vast data sets to use to train their algorithms to do something for example in a consumer you know based industry a retail industry tremendous information available on their existing consumers buying patterns and trends and tendencies and such through their current systems and they can use that to develop new ai based products and services better recommendation engines etc but as time goes on there's um, we have more IoT out in the world. And we have more common data sets available that are available on some of the platforms. Those types of benefits make it democratized to you know to the smaller companies as well. So it'll evolve as we go on. But it's not as simple as saying the big companies you know are going to have the advantage going forward. We think uh, there'll actually be a lot of uh, creation and spread of you know entrepreneurial small companies, new companies being formed, being able to leverage the powerful uh, AI capabilities that exist.
1: So, continuing through kind of the thesis of your book after that first step, what do you suggest companies do next what What comes after that initial assessment?
0: Well, a big thing that you that you need to do is look at um, at the at your workforce and preparing your workforce and we think this is the real critical issue. We devote uh, a number of chapters in the book just to preparing people and in your your workforce uh, for for ai and there's two parts of it uh That we talk about one is preparing the people who are going to do AI. So you need to recruit the right people. You need to think about the new jobs and skills that you need to to develop AI within your company, whether you're a large or small organization. And then there's a a bigger category of people with how do you prepare all the people in your organization who need to use AI in different ways? The people whose jobs are going to change as a result of AI, and that's a big issue. That's the majority of roles. In most companies, so in our book, we're talking about both of those. Uh, but I think the harder thing for, for many organizations is that latter piece, which is how do I look at how you know changing the role of my my uh, customer success or customer care organization, my R and D organization, my back office uh, finance organization, et cetera. How do I change those roles for to, to take advantage of the new AI capabilities that we have? And to answer that question in the in the book, we've defined six new categories of jobs that we believe are the new jobs of the AI future that we're moving into that really don't exist today and that define the new ways we need to develop people and train people to make sure that we have the right workforce available for the for the, this, this new age we're moving into. So, it's about these new jobs, training people differently for these new jobs, and uh, structuring, you know, restructuring work, or as we say in the book title, reimagining the work around these new jobs that uh, we're starting to see being created. And I can talk about some examples of that if it's helpful. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, so one example, um, it, it, so I take, there's, a, there's one set of jobs that's about helping, or uh, people are needed to help AI operate in the right way and more effectively. We call these trainers explainers, and sustainers. They all happen to rhyme, which is convenient for, for memory. Trainers, explainers, and sustainers. And these are new human roles, not necessarily technology roles, but where people are needed to manage algorithms. A trainer, for example, example of a new trainer role that we're hiring into my company, into Accenture, are uh, behavioral and personality trainers for chatbots and virtual agents. You know, Behavioral training for, for the chatbots. It's not technically programming them, but it's deciding how do I want my... My persona represented through a chatbot or virtual agent to my consumers. Uh, Do I want it to be a little like snarky and have an attitude and a little bit of edge to it, or do I want it to be more conservative? And uh, many, many questions like that. These are skills that involve sociology, understanding of your customers, linguistics, and many different dimensions. We have people with poetry backgrounds that are that tend to be good at this type of work. And it's a new job. It's not tagging data, uh, you know, the, the basic form of training for for AI. It's about the behavioral training that from is going to represent the brand of your company on the front lines, and we have a phrase we use in the book that we talk about with our clients a lot, which is says that AI is becoming your brand. You know, the AI in the form of virtual agents, chatbots, the way you respond to customers is your brand to the company, and you have to think very carefully about how that brand is being manifest uh, to your consumers. The trainer job is one category of jobs. Another j- category of jobs we talk about are are the, are the explainers. A good example of the need for this job is what we just saw with Uber with a tragic incident in Tempe where the Uber car killed a pedestrian. If you look at, you know, Uber's response to that, which I think, I think they had a, a very good response to this overall, but it was about explaining what happened, doing the root cause diagnostic, understanding, you know, the, what, what the problem was. And if, if you followed the, you know, the recent articles and explain in commentary from Google, what happened was they had an algorithm which thought that the pedestrian was a false positive and didn't use the reaction time to slow down in time because the algorithm was tuned improperly. What we need are new roles like explainers and sustainers, human roles that understand the implications of the algorithms and are adjusting the, its algorithms dynamically so that you avoid incidents like that. And when you do have an incident, you respond very quickly and improve as a result of it. And that's the explainer and sustainer roles we're talking about. So we believe these aren't just individuals, one or twosies, here and there in organizations. These represent hundreds of thousands and, and millions of jobs as you scale it across the
1: economy and around the world. And these are the, the jobs of the future as you look at AI. And I'm with you with this, you know, human plus model for a lot of things. But in some cases, you know, it will just be an AI doing something. Yeah. And in other cases, uh, AI is going to create hitherto unimaginable jobs like the ones you're describing. How do you think that's all going to net out over the next decade or two? Do you think that we're going to have a big turnover in the kinds of jobs or it's overstated in the media? Do you think there's going to be... Uh, transitional pains or this is, this is like every other innovation that's come before it in terms of it impacts, we adjust and it, and it kind of morphs into a new thing and then it happens again and again and again? It, it, it's a
0: great question.
1: I, I think, frankly, that's the biggest question we face for our generation
0: coming here. Uh, our view, you know, through our research, through our experience, working with thousands of companies and through the, we talk about the book, is we're, we're cautiously optimistic on this front. We believe the issue isn't jobs and that, uh, based on our experience and a lot of the other research that's out there, independent research, we'll, be, we'll continue to create lots of jobs. Um, in the U.S. alone, as a data point, there's 6.5 million unemployed people. There's roughly a little over 6 million open jobs, close to the same number. And we created 170,000 jobs last month. According to the jobs report, we're creating about that number every month. So, And, and we already have a pretty, pretty strong employment. So the issue isn't the jobs, per se, it's how do we get the people who are who lack the skills, the right skills to do these jobs? So that, that's why we're not fully optimistic, but we're cautiously optimistic. We believe the jobs will be there, but we're, we're, we're not on a on, on the right course to make sure all the people are prepared. So there will be more displacement, as you said. Uh, there'll be more, you know, in the short, medium term, there, there's certain occupations that'll be at risk for more complete automation. And for those professions, as those are added to the unemployed, how do we make sure we're proactively Reskilling those people in the right way, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But that—that that is we what we believe is the biggest issue, and one a big reason we wrote the book. And one thing that we talk about in the book is we're donating all the proceeds of the book to nonprofits who are focused on mid-career reskilling. And we're donating all the all all the, all the proceeds because we believe that that's the area that's it's that's not achieving the right focus and the right investment at this stage. There's a lot of focus on. You know, not enough yet, but at least a lot of attention on k through twelve and higher ed and community college and apprenticeship and lots of different models, which is great. But we need to f- think about the people in the middle of their career who are displaced, whose job is automated. how do we make how do we use technology and cre- think of creative new programs to get those people productive? and we don't have all the answers to that, but in the book we paid uh, we paid out the direction that we need to take on those issues, and again, we're donating the proceeds to organizations who are who are um, dedicated to solving that problem
1: so this sort of mid-career disruption, though, is nothing new. When um, when the assembly line came out, everybody who was crafting things one at a time, you know, they were... The, the, uh, the assembly line had to look like an incredibly frightening kind of artificial intelligence yeah. craftsperson. When, um, when in a very short period of time, we uh, replaced all animal power with steam power, I mean, that was a huge change in the the professions of a lot of people and so forth. And... And there, weren't, there wasn't this kind of like, how are we going to help people uh re-skill? And now we're in this age where it's, in a sense, never been easier, right? Because most people have access to the internet, and therefore they have access to any number of uh, online resources that are free to learn new skills and all of that. So why, in an era where we actually have more connectivity, uh, do you think we're having, in your view, more problems uh, getting the right skills to the right people?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another very good question. And just to your point on like the assembly line age, there's a great clip. I'd encourage you, you and your listeners to go look at it. Just search Charlie Chaplin modern times factory. you'll see a clip, Sure, Right, you
1: literally
0: get sucked into the gears <laughs> yeah. of the, uh, of the assembly lines. So this fear, to your point, the fear has always been there. The Luddites in the back of the uh, turn of the, the, the 20th century uh, into the 1900s. It's this fear of, you know, it's a basic human instinct. I think where we fear this new technology and the implications it's going to have, and it's going to put us out of work or, you know, have adverse implications. The reason it, it is, Something we need to consider more this time than the other times is the pace with which it's happening, uh, because we've had we have this exponential combinatorial uh, revolution with technology. Uh, we believe um, that we're we're in the uh, in this era now where you know AI is creating more change in the next five years than we've seen in the last thirty. We're gonna it's gonna disrupt things more than the PC and internet itself. So it's just the pace with which this is coming, which means that people aren't going to have a generation to prepare themselves they might only have a few years and in that environment how do we provide better support for it so the answer is there's a couple things we need to do one is businesses we believe and my company believes that we as businesses need to take more accountability for retraining and make, and ensuring the relevance of the skills of our people so at Accenture we invest a billion dollars a year in training and our goal is to keep all of our people relevant and skilled in the in the technologies uh, that are that are coming Others like ATT have made a similar size and, and very large commitment to the same goal. And we're seeing more and more organizations do that. Not enough are doing it yet, though. Uh, in our book, for our book, we did some research we talked about, and uh, two thirds of the executives told us that they believe their organizations and their, their workforce is not ready for AI. Two thirds say their workforce is not ready. Only 3% say that they're going to increase learning for their you know, learning programs, for their employees as a result. And that's an unacceptable gap. If two-thirds believe their workforce isn't ready, more than 3% need to be investing in the learning to, to help prepare their people. And if you're taking a view that you're just going to replace the people with others who can do it, uh, we believe you're going to fail because you're not going to find the people who can do it uh, because in many cases it's moving so fast they don't exist. It's about using your current human capital in the most effective way you can and creating those learning platforms. That's one answer. We also need better community-based and uh, public-private sector collaboration on these things because we're in a, we're in a different economy than we were with the, with the other transitions you talked about. 50% of the American workforce, to take our you know, the U.S. here right now, well, that's similar numbers in other countries, 50% of the U.S. workforce is 1099 Contingent contractor labor—it's the gig economy—and they work for themselves. And in that environment, the business isn't going to, you know, reskill those people. We need other mechanisms to reskill those people as their gig economy roles, you know, become less relevant as AI and other forms of automation come online. And that's where we need more public-private sector collaboration. The kinds of organizations that we're working with as we uh, donate the proceeds of this book, and we're working actively with governments, with communities, and with educators on other
1: solutions to that problem as well. Well, I, I do want to. Dive a little deeper into this statement you made, uh, because I don't see it, and I may be short-sighted, and I'm optimistic about this technology, and I believe that, in the end, AI makes people smarter, and there's no downside to empowering everybody with, with more intelligence. When you say, we're going to see more change in the next five years, presuming employment you're talking about, than the last 30 we began this conversation talking about 30 years ago, and you listed out all the stuff that's changed in the 30 years since you joined your company. Put some meat on that. I want to know what you think in five short years from now is going to be dis- as disruptive as the last 30 years of technology that we have that we have experienced. So, give me some solid things that will happen in five years that you think are going to be uh, out- uh, collectively outweigh the the last 30. Yeah, I think we're going to see it in 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 different
0: parts of business and in different parts of of, business, in, in parts of, of um, you know kind of the consumer experience and how we use technology. So one one thing to think about is the the smartphone itself. You know, the iPhone is only 11 years old now. think about 11 years, how dependent we've become on that technology and how many business models have been reshaped around the smartphone. That's just 11. You know, that's just uh, 11 years from now. And it, think then about you know the next generation of interfaces that we're developing we have the we have the the alexas the Cortana's, the google voice etc whose capabilities are moving incredibly fast and we're re- increasingly relying on these new voice operated agents and different technologies to do more and more of what we can do so when we look even 5 years out i think we're going to see it start seeing a, a bigger shift where you know the the mode of interaction isn't going to be us typing with thumbs on on keyboards or fingers fingers on big keyboards or thumbs on our smartphone keyboards, which is a you know, primitive you know primitive interaction. But we're going to be having much more human like interaction with our technology that's going to transform our interaction and in the way we you know the way we use uh, the way we do our jobs and work as well. So in call centers, for example, we'll have people that are going to be using you know bots that sometimes answer calls directly, but advise them on how to better answer calls, so it's you know, wingmen to help them do their jobs more effectively. In uh, maintenance jobs, people you know, we're already seeing a change in manufacturing. People who are doing maintenance on things like jet engines or wind turbines or their equipment, rather than just going out and doing a checklist, manual checklist and checking the physical equipment, they're using AI-powered digital twin models to, in real time, uh, make dynamic uh, decisions fueled by Uh, you know, Internet of Things type of information feeds powered by artificial intelligence that can do future modeling of what might happen with that equipment and push big frontline decisions to individual technicians rather than, you know, have them happen in the middle of an organization. So dramatic changes in jobs, the way that work happens that we're starting to see already that'll, that'll happen more broadly as we go through the next, you know, several years. And that's what's going to create a lot of these disruptive impacts and means, you know, it means that we're going to... Start seeing more of these job impacts than we than we collectively have over the last several years.
1: So, well, like like every technology, AI is inherently neutral. It's how it's applied. That, yeah. that yeah. and and again, I'm I'm an an optimist about it. I think that on, on net, uh, there are more people that want to build in this world than destroy. And so, in net, technology is applied to good more often than not. Um. But do you worry, because I'm already thinking back to your earlier comments about uh, the anti-money laundering, the ability to go through so much data. And do you worry about the privacy implications of that once every conversation can be understood and and and, and our cameras can read lips as well as a human and every email can be read and all of that, that that same technology will be used to curtail individual liberty and freedom. I mean, in the past, we've always had some amount of anonymity just by the virtue that we all live in an incredibly large ocean of data that nobody can make sense of. And that same tool that can spot the money laundering can also spot political sentiment as well. Do you worry about that application of the technology? And how do you think we mitigate? If so, how do we mitigate against that?
0: Yeah, well, to be clear, just to, with with where you started the question, I'm, I'm very much an optimist on the power of the technology and where we're going as well. We're gonna, we're we're improving our human capability to use technology. We I talk I talk in the book about it gives us superpowers. AI is giving people superpowers in the way we work and live, and we're gonna solve societal problems around you know agriculture, sustainability, better health outcomes, reduced disease that we couldn't imagine solving. So clearly an optimist around it. My only point on the jobs is jobs and skills is we just have to make sure we're bringing everybody around, along in an inclusive way to benefit from the changes. In terms of the, the privacy thing and some of the risks around AI, yeah, again, again, there's some real issues that we need to think about more carefully than we've needed to think about with prior technology. We, we call it broadly the area of responsible AI, privacy is an element of it. And we talk in the book in a, in a couple of chapters about a new obligation of companies to have very specific codes of responsible ai and how they're applying the technology privacy is an element of it about how you're respecting the data Uh, bias in data is another big issue are are, is the data are the data and algorithms you're using biased at the core because all data has some bias in it are you scaling unforeseen or or unanticipated consequences of that in a biased way. And there's been many examples of companies getting burned by that, you know, in the way that they've applied AI. There's a transparency and explainability obligations that we believe are important, especially with the GDPR laws that are going into effect in Europe. And, And a few other things that we group into this responsible AI category. I think they're all solvable. So I'm an optimist on them, but they're, but they're only solvable if leaders and organizations give proper attention to putting the right guardrails in place and understanding the issues and dealing with them properly. And we think what's going to happen is that responsible AI is going to become a differentiator for competitiveness of companies. Those that follow responsible policies are going to have more trust from their consumers. And the trust is, trust is an under, underutilized value uh, you know, currently that's going to have huge value going forward. Think about the AI algorithms we're talking about that are monitoring your real-time personal health characteristics or using your genomic information, your personal genomic information to offer you better medical insights, you're going to have to have immense trust in who you're giving this data to to get these AI-powered services that you want back. And we're going to do that with organizations we trust. And those that have demonstrably better responsible AI practices, we think, will have a competitive advantage. And we've seen in our research that we talk about in the book that there's evidence that those companies taking that approach do have a, you know, kind of a higher return as they look at applying, uh, applying this type of, uh, these types of values. So this issue of trust and applying data in a way that, uh, that instills more trust is, I think, a a basis for competition differentiation among companies going forward.
1: It's interesting that you're, you're saying the market's going to solve for it. Uh, So you don't really see a role in government legislation of responsible AI? Well, I, I, was, I was at the White House meeting last week, uh, AI and industry, where the White House convened a
0: set of leaders. I'm spending more time on, in uh, both houses of Congress with, on both sides of the aisle, um, as uh, in Canada last week and other countries talking about the same issue. I, I do believe the public sector has a role to play. I believe we need our public sector, uh, our politicians, our policymakers, the agencies and such, more educated on AI so that they can guide more effectively. So I do believe there's a role for government. I believe it's too early to regulate AI. I don't think we'd know how to define it to regulate it right now in, in a way that's um, that wouldn't impede progress. But I do believe that there's a role that government can play in, in setting direction in a safe way. A great example is what the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. did a little while ago, where they said, you know, they, in essence, said a similar thing. It's they, they can't regulate AI, but they recognize AI is a, a very important tool for the food, food and drug industries. You know, the industries they regulate. So they, they provided a framework and guidelines for organizations on how to use artificial intelligence and in the in things they should be thinking about, which was empowering for industry because rather than fearing any response from the FDA, they now have guidelines on how the FDA thinks they should be using artificial intelligence. That kind of guidance and cooperation between public and private sector, we think is really instrumental in making sure that we're not slowing down the progress of applying AI to to business and solving, you know, these, these types of problems.
1: You made a statement earlier. I wrote it down because I was, uh, I wanted to come back to it. You said, and I quote, all data has bias. I'm curious if you would explain that because in theory, if, if the data is true, the data is uh, 100% a reflection of reality. I could see maybe you say how we interact with the data, but how do you think data itself, th- th- which is presumably truth, is inherently biased?
0: Yeah, I believe, I'm a believer that you know, you, you know, we should be being data-based in how we ground decisions and think about things. And In that sense, data, I use the phrase, data is ground truth for how we think about things. But at the same time, when you use data in that way, you, you need to realize and understand the context of any data you have So if you've got a set of consumer data, it's got certain demographic representation of the consumers you have in whatever part of the business you collected it from. And uh, and in terms of the way way you've modeled that data and collected data, et cetera. So if you take that data and apply it to a whole different population, jurisdiction, and demographic set of customers, you may tailor your services in a way which disadvantage certain sets of customers just based on – you know, taking the data from one place to another. So that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say all uh, I data has bias. All data represents a context. And if you apply it to a different context, it's going to reflect the nature of the context in which it was developed. And there's a lot of human bias that we all have. We all have our own biases individually, and that's all reflected, or in many cases, reflected in the data we have too. So we need to, as we apply AI, we need to make sure we're also using AI to test for bias. And there's some very interesting research we're doing using things like adversarial neural nets and things to actually test the veracity and objectivity of the data that's coming out of the algorithms that we're producing. And I think that's a very interesting area for the future.
1: So here you are writing books and advising presidents and traveling the world and all of that. And it turns out you also have a day job, uh, a very demanding one, it would seem. Talk a little bit about what you do at Accenture and what you're working on and what excites you and what your role is and all of that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I've got a, a, a title of and a role of Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at Accenture, and we're uh, just for those who don't know, they're listening. We're a 35 billion dollar in a revenue company, annual revenue with with um, about 440,000 employees around the world. So a big organization, serving 75% of the Fortune 500. So that, that's the work we do, and the, what I my job is to is to Look at how we continually change our company, move our company to be more relevant with the new technologies than what's coming before. The, cha- you know, the challenge for us, as you think about, it, is we're 35 billion in revenue, and uh, we're growing. Say, you know, close to 10% a year is, is what we've been growing at uh, in that range, a little less. But um, we're adding about two or three billion dollars of revenue a year, and in and generally, the new stuff we're doing is on technology that wasn't really at scale five, you know, five or seven years ago. So we're creating billions of dollars of new business every year based on new technology, uh, and, and so the, the ability to innovate and stay on top of the emerging technology is really what I what I focus on. So it's, uh, it's in it's been areas like cloud computing and uh, Internet of Things and those types of technologies, blockchain, virtual reality, uh, and artificial intelligence. Uh, AI is probably our biggest single focus right now. I call it the Alpha trend. That's really bigger and you know bigger than the others and shaping the other trends. But there's many other things we have our eye on. We're also doing work in areas like quantum computing and uh, biologic computing, uh, biotech, et cetera, that we believe are becoming mainstream and impacting many industries. So those are the types of things I, I focus on in my job around how do we rotate our business you know, to, these, uh, to these newer technologies. And at this point, we, uh, about half of our revenue right now is in technologies we define as kind of that new category of technologies like the ones I described. So we're rotating fast to, to all these new areas.
1: Well, wonderful! It has been an exciting hour. We have covered a lot of ground. Uh, we could we could have had two shows. The book again is Human Plus Machine: Reimagining the Work, Reimagining Work in the Age of AI. Uh, I assume people can get it wherever fine books are sold. What if they want to keep up with you, Paul? How uh, do you do? You blog? What, what is your social media profile and all of that?
0: Yeah, you'll find me, uh, you know, um, very active on uh, LinkedIn and on Twitter. Twitter is uh, Paul Dog, P-A-U-L-D-A-U-G-H. On LinkedIn, Paul R. Doherty is where you'll find me uh, from that from that perspective. Uh, I have a website out there where we're keeping up with uh, fresh new ideas on the book uh, that you can locate as well if you do a search for Paul Doherty, Human Plus Machines. So all, those are all good ways to track me. And our Accenture website has uh, lots of information on all these topics as well. And my uh, first action following this call is to dive more into uh, your book as well so i look forward to
1: well thank you. you thank you it uh it um it tackles a lot of the same kinds of things it seems like you're thinking about so i'll uh, it, i'll be curious to hear what you have to say thanks a bunch for your time paul thank you byron
0: if you enjoyed this episode of voices in ai please check out the other ones and in addition byron reese hosts another podcast about ai called the ai minute every day it's a minute or two of daily reflections about ai It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice, and in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.